Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. Today, I have Priya Lakhani, who I met once before a couple of years ago, but really don't know very well at all. Welcome, Priya. Thank you. Let's talk a bit about your background, your education, and the startup you did at school. So the start of at school was um, I learned from my brother that I could make a bit of money by selling chocolate bars at school. So I was young and I would go out with him, you know, in his car and we'd go to the cash and carry. We'd buy cases of chomps and I would sell chomps at, for 10 pence at school. Um, chomps being... Uh, chomp bars, the chocolate bars. I'm too um, the, old for that. Uh, the little chewy chocolate bars. Um, actually, they were more popular about 10, 20 years ago than, than I think they are now. I would buy those, I'd sell them for 10 pence, I'd buy them for 7 pence. And then very soon I learned that I could scale to curly whirlies because you can make a bigger margin on curly whirlies. And so I used to sell those too. I used to mostly eat my profits, unfortunately, but um, I also used to dabble on the stock market. So I also used to spend some of my time at home looking at stocks and shares, penny shares. And then I'd get my mum to go into the local Barclays Bank and purchase shares for me and actually made quite a lot of money like that. Thousands and thousands of pounds, I should say, yeah. that came in very, very handy when I was at university. Yes. Um, so I managed to go on lots of lovely ski trips and I spent it all, of course, as you do. But yeah, I enjoyed a sort of nice early career as, you know, as an entrepreneur and also somebody who was dabbling um, on the stock exchange. And was this from sort of your parents? Were they entrepreneurial? or? Yes, yeah, so my parents are East African Indian. And um, as the story goes, as many of them, but they, would, they went to East Africa, they built businesses. My father then came to the UK. He built factories in the UK after he worked at ICI and he was involved in creating the wine in the bag and the IP in that has his name on it, which is great. But a very East African entrepreneurial background. So I was brought up around people who built businesses. And I guess that must have inspired me along the way. But a lot of this was learned with my brother. So my brother was, is four years older than me. He would come up with these schemes and I would basically follow him. So he was well known in Hale Village in Cheshire as Dale Boy and I was known as Rodney. <laughs> so, yeah, we were quite the tag team. And so I learned a lot from him. So then you moved on to university. During this young period, I spent a lot of time in East Africa during some long summers and long winter holidays and spent a lot of time amongst children who had nothing, you know, and I I was really always very taken by the poverty around me. So I decided at a young age that I would change the world. I would be the person who would would make sure that every child had similar opportunity to me because I didn't like the injustice that they faced in terms of inequality. And so I decided that I would study something that could potentially help change the world. And I became very interested in law. I specifically wanted to be a barrister rather than a solicitor. And um, that's the career route that I then pursued. And I ended up um, becoming a libel lawyer for the press. So I focused on libel and privacy. And my aim there was to work within the press and try and make the press more positive, which was potentially a bit naive at the time. But I did realise that, you know, if you have better lawyers working within press organisations, then investigations are better because better questions can be asked. And obviously, lawyers are involved in the scrutiny of the press that the public actually see at the end of the day. So you worked for a firm or you worked for a I worked in-house. media company? I worked in-house at media companies. So yeah. I was seeing things as they came up, which was fascinating. I worked for newspaper groups with hundreds of newspapers. I worked for ITV. And my take on everything was to make sure that the press was right, that it was reasonable. And I really, really enjoyed my job. I have to say that if I ever retire one day, which I'm not sure is ever a word that an entrepreneur would ever use, but I would be a libel lawyer for free because it was a lot of fun knowing what was about to go into the press. Uh, that Well, now it's the next minute because it's digital, obviously, but at the time it was what's, what was going to go out the next morning. 
So how many years were you practising then for? Four. And when I was practising, there was one particular news group that I was working for and I was constantly going to fix other problems in the news group that weren't really part of my job description. And so one of the C-levels called me into his office and I thought I was in trouble because I'd let a story go through that maybe we were going to be sued on. But instead he said, have you ever thought about running a newspaper? You know, we've never really put anyone through a management programme that hasn't been in sales, but we think you'd be quite good at it. That's when I was about 26 years old. And I thought, well, if you think I can run a newspaper, I'm pretty sure I could run my own company. And I don't want to go on a training scheme. And I don't really want to work for a large media organisation. What I do want to do is actually change the world, is do something very different. And I really feel that I should just learn by myself. So the next day I quit, which he really wasn't really? expecting. And that's because I'd had this idea to start a food company. I was working late nights, obviously, as a libel barrister. I was newly married. I've done the Cordon Bleu courses. I'm a good chef. But I had no time to cook. And when I went to the supermarkets, I found that there were no fresh sources in the ethnic food section. So when you go to the supermarket, even now, you'll find that there are lots of ambient sources in the ethnic section. But the fresh sources and the healthy food is often related to Italian. So in 2008, there were no fresh ethnic sources. There were only fresh pasta sources. And with a recession that was about to hit the country, there are a portion of the population that would have a higher disposable income than many others because they would still be in their jobs and obviously interest rates would decrease. So I thought, well, why don't we create a premium Mm. food brand? And so I created Masala Masala, which was the first fresh ethnic source brand in the UK. I was laughed out of the door by all suppliers who said, are you having a joke? It's very difficult to get into supermarkets. You're never going to get in. You know, it's impossible. Do you have a sibling who's a buyer? And it's the constant naysayers Mm. because what I find... Actually, throughout my life, even when I wanted to be a lawyer, because my head teacher said, you're never going to be a barrister, you're brown, you're female, you know, you're an ethnic minority. Barristers tend to be white males who go to Oxbridge, and you're not going to Oxbridge either. There are always naysayers. Mm. And this is constant. This is not just when you have a big idea. This is also any small thing that anyone wants to do. There'll always be a small portion of the population who'll say you can't. So I thought, well, I'm going to defy those people and just do it anyway. I think I've been rebellious all my life. And I really enjoyed the challenge. And within six weeks, I had nationwide supermarket deals. And they came about not so easily. You know, every time I would send information to Waitrose, for example, which was my number one target, they wouldn't receive it or they would lose my samples. And, they, you know, I had to create an entire... Where did you make the samples? At home? Yeah, I did the health and safety course. And I found a company who would test our samples for bacteria had to learn everything. Yeah. And these are just samples. Yeah. And this is only so that we could find out, you know, how many carbohydrates, how much protein and all the things that you put on a label. But then I had to find a manufacturer. So I had to go out there. And, I, and then most of them were laughing me out of the door. And I only wanted to go to a large manufacturer. I refused to go to a small one because I knew that if I go to a small one, supermarkets will say, you know, how are you producing this? And what about health? Well, no, what about health and safety is their okay. first concern. Yeah. I don't think scale at that point was really an issue for me, although it's a fresh source. Might be for them. But yeah, I mean, but there are lots of small manufacturers that supply, like, for example, farmers markets, but then they sort of scale up to delicatessens. Mm. I wanted to go to the source manufacturer who produces sources for Waitrose Mm. and for Tesco and for Sainsbury's, because then that just couldn't be an objection. And I don't know where I learned this from, but all I figured out, and it stands true today, is stop trying to break down barriers, circumvent them, right? Just walk around them because it's too hard to break down barriers. So, and don't let things be issues when they don't need to be issues. Because starting a business, I am well aware that I'm going to have problems that I won't even know exist Mm. until they exist. So I just thought in order to solve that problem head on, 
if I go to their manufacturer, when they ask me all those questions, I can say, well, I'm using your manufacturer. So what's the problem? So I went to the Icelandic manufacturer, Bakavor, that produces their sources. In the UK or in Iceland? Well, they're here. No, they're in the UK. And I also only wanted to go to a UK manufacturer because, you know, there were all these issues I had to deal with. But actually won them over and we worked with them. You know, I needed a pot, I needed a sauce. I gave them the recipes. I took my mum with me. She was my creative director. We basically replicated her sources, and they were indeed the best sources. I mean, you know, later on when we surveyed 11,000 Waitrose and Ocado customers, everybody, everybody, bar one person, rated our sources as excellent or very good. And the one person who rated them as good in their notes said, I just prefer your other sauce. They they (laughs) prefer the taste of the other sauce, which is fine. So it was a very successful process. And somebody said, oh, you need a supply chain. And that's when I learned the term supply chain. I mean, the fact that I didn't even know that was, is, you know, <laughs> it gives you an idea about how little I knew at the time. And so I created the supply chain, got the sources produced. I actually just drove to Waitrose. I drove to the head office. I stood outside head office. I went into reception and I had my pots of sauce that now had a really nice label on them. And they'd been made up and I had all the things that Waitrose would need. And I said, I've got this for the buyer. And I knew the buyer's name. And they said, oh, you can leave it in reception. And I said, no, 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 these are fresh. And if I leave them with you, they'll go off. And I've also sent these over about five times. And every time I send them to Waitrose, I have to send them in a chilled vehicle. And every time I send a chilled vehicle to you, that costs me £60. It's not like sending something in the post. So I need her to take these. I will only leave if she takes them face to face. And the reason I did that was not to bully them to give the samples to the buyer. But it was this one lesson that I had learned actually earlier in life throughout childhood is that it's very, very difficult to say no to a human, but it's very easy to say no to an email, mm. right? It's mm. very, very simple mm. to say no. But when you're face-to-face, people yeah. find it quite difficult. Yes. And at least if they want to say no, they'll hear you out. And then they'll justify their no with a because. Because only the most assertive people just say no. Well, they can always take it back to her committee, of course. Yeah, <laughs> so well, they, they can always do that, yes, but, yeah. but then you get feedback. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, the lean startup hadn't been written up at this point, mm. but that is agile methodology. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It is, what is the feedback? What do I need to change? How do I change it? How do I make it suit your needs? Because we know that the number one reason why businesses don't succeed and they fail is because they fail to build a product or service that is actually solving mm. a customer's right. need, yeah. right? It's not something they need or want. And so... To entrepreneurs back then, it was common sense, mm. right? To the ones who succeeded, it was mm. common sense. Build something or create something that people actually need. And we'll want. pay for the and right we'll amount of money. Yeah, yeah, and that's the difference between an MVP and an MSP, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. this is in food, yeah, so this yeah. is an FMCG. And so created that, took it in. Within a few days, they got back and said, we want to launch. They gave me 60 stores. But the day before I actually did launch, they phoned me up and said, we're doing all stores, 222 nationwide deal which was an interesting night because I had to get my supply chain to work overnight to produce enough fresh sauce to not let them so down. How many pots would that have been? 10,000 or Do you know, I actually can't remember the first run. The funny thing is, is that, and every entrepreneur will feel this, you will have this moment, I had it at Century with my second venture. You don't remember the numbers with the first big waitress deal. What I do remember is my first deal and my first cheque. Right. I mean, you would have had well, that, right? Well, so, can, yeah, I have. Yes. You remember yeah, it, right? Just correlated yeah, the check yeah, yeah, to the same, volume. Yeah. Yes. yeah, no, no, I don't remember that. I remember my first check, and what I will tap in that I'll tell you there, it was Harvey Nichols. It was £108. <laughs> it was a check. It wasn't a transfer or anything. And I got it in the post, and it was the best £108 I'd ever, <laughs> ever seen in my life. And it was for just a handful of cases. But the really, really funny thing about that was that big manufacturers don't make a handful of cases. So they made a pallet. 
right? And a palette. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so no, because it's fresh. But um, a palette is 80 cases, and Harvey Nichols were only buying six cases. So I had, you know, a lot of cases to get rid of. 74 cases in the back of a van. So I'd literally gone within weeks from wearing a three-piece suit as a barrister to wearing a hoodie and jogging bottoms, driving a van. And I went to Victoria's tube station and I parked on the double red route. I know this is public, but hopefully there is some sort of, you know, statute of limitations on that, <laughs> as I admit that. But I parked on the double red route. I was lifting these 74 cases out of the back of my van outside the front of Victoria station during rush hour. And I was shouting, available in Waitrose in six weeks. So I thought it would be a good marketing effort. And, and actually, I do know that people wrote to me and said, you said it's available in Waitrose. It's not. And then I had to remind them it was in a few weeks' time. Did you give them away? I was giving them away for free. Yeah. Saying, go and taste it at home. Yeah. And, you know, feedback on Facebook mm. and use the social media that was available that was yeah. popular at the time um, and tell your friends about it. And so I was using it as a marketing tactic to launch in Waitrose because... People really like free stuff, particularly stuff that they can take home that's tangible. Mm. And what was really interesting was that I was being yelled at because I couldn't open the boxes you know, quick Fast enough. enough yes. So people were getting their keys out and they were keying the boxes and taking them out saying, give me more and I want that one. And, and then this homeless guy took complete pity on me and started helping me. And I offered him the pots of sauce at the end of it, you know, a couple of pots, but he said, I've not got a kitchen. So I went and bought him a sandwich from press and and gave it to him. And then some parking attendants came up and they said, you're parked on the red route. So I ran to them and I said, please don't give me a ticket. Look, I'm in trouble, right? People are yelling at me. They're keying the boxes. A homeless person's taking pity on me. And so I said, look, why don't you take a case for home? Because these guys, they were African. And I said, they're, they're ethnic. It's the first ever ethnic fresh sauce. And he said, okay. So they took the case each and they took them home. They didn't give me a ticket. And the next thing I know is four other parking attendants, right? Because they've gone and told their <laughs> friends. And so I took four cases away and I gave them, and they didn't give me a ticket. But, you know, it was really interesting how my first check was actually so much more memorable because I went home and I was exhausted that day and I had cuts all over my hands. It was my first experience. It's very relevant, I think, to all business, not just FMCG, but also in software, that it is blood, sweat and tears, mm. literally, mm. running a business. It has its peaks, but it also definitely has its very difficult times. And, and while that was a really, there was a rush in that, and I can talk about it anecdotally, and it's, it's really good fun talking about it. But it was really exhausting and actually quite a scary proposition when you've got 74 cases you're lifting t- sort of two by two yeah. at the time by myself, mm. people yelling at you, parking attendants. You know, it's a great story, and, and you know, I don't regret it, and I would do it again. So how did the business scale then? Yeah, so actually, we ended up in 3,000 stores in the UK. We ended up exporting it to the Middle East through a distributor. I had my first child while running the business and I ran it pretty much by myself with a couple of interns. This was my first sort of dabbling into business, if you like. And when I started the business, I realized at that point that this is my chance to actually change the world and go back to that six-year-old who was playing football in, you know, in the streets in Nairobi with some kids where I looked at them and thought, I want to change things. So Masala Masala was very different. With every pot of sauce that I sold, I would feed a homeless person a hot meal in India. I would provide vaccines in Africa, the pentavalent vaccine, the five-in-one which saves you from five of the biggest killers in terms of diseases. And I would fund schools Mm. in the slums. So I was building schools. Mm. And we were profit-making from year one. And I would take all the profits. I'd plough some of it into marketing to make the business, you know, scale. But I would actually plough a lot of it back into these charitable causes. And I was enjoying doing that. I was in my late 20s. I was suddenly put on Vince Cable's advisory board at Beers. I was walking into number 10. I was having a grand time. And it was a great business. I never sort of talk about the revenues, actually. I don't think I ever have done, but... You know, we did about 10 million hot meals. You can start yeah, to now think yeah, if I'm selling yeah. a part of a sauce. And yeah, yeah. 
Our margins were very healthy, which is, I think, our suppliers uh, realised at some point yes. that I was making a 56% net margin. Right. Through the retail channel as Through well. Through the channels, yeah. yeah. So we were selling it at $2.99 a pot. And then because it was a very, very low cost business in terms yeah. of I ran a supply chain. So that's all I had and a couple of salaries. So basically, Masala Masala was a brand mm. and it was a, a supply chain. It was a logistics operation. Right. But it was in chilled logistics. And right. chilled logistics is very difficult. You know, the first few cases that we'd send to the Middle East would explode on the plane because the pots of sauce with the pressure would yes. explode and there'd yeah. be sauce everywhere and they'd get very cross with me. And so we had to meddle with the, the recipe a little bit to make it work. And that was all a really, a very, very steep learning curve and a very quick one. And once our suppliers, really the recession hit, they were knocked in terms of the cost of garlic, ginger, spices. I remember the cost of spices rocketed a few years in. They were put under enormous pressure by the supermarkets to reduce their own label mm. pricing of own label products. So they'd come up to me and within about a two-week period in 2012, prices were increased by about 100%. And our distributor, which I'd found... These are raw material prices. Raw material, yeah, yeah. no, my price, oh, price. my price. Um, so raw material prices. But this is nobody trying to pull the wool yeah. over anyone's eyes. It was global news that raw material prices were increasing at the time. I had a backup manufacturer, so that would have been fine. Mm. I could have gone there. I accepted the price increases initially because masala masala would still be okay. We wouldn't be able to have as much of an impact mm. worldwide in, in sort of our charitable efforts. I accepted those. In the meantime, I was looking at a backup manufacturer. But because I was then pregnant with my second child, I decided that we really want this business to scale. And it's not going to scale with just me running it the way that I am. I will get a great distributor to take on the product. So we worked with three distributors. We picked one that's still operating, I think, but they had worked with some other big brands like pasta sauce brands. They didn't have much experience in chilled and not many do because most distributors work with ambient product, but they were willing to take it on and we worked with them. And then within literally a few weeks of agreeing a deal with them and having a contract with them, they sent us an email saying we need some help with marketing costs and they were asking for a quarter of a million pounds. So something was going very, very wrong there. And what I learned was one of their largest brands left them for another distributor because they failed to get insurance on their warehouse. Right. Now, insurance on a warehouse doesn't affect me very much because I'm shifting product every day. Mm. My product goes off in nine days. Yeah. So if it says a fire or a flood in a warehouse, you're not going to lose so much stock that it's going to break masala masala. Right. But you will break other businesses that are storing ambient stock there. So that was an issue. So manufacturing prices up, distributor not working, I need to find another one. And at the time, again, it was literally within that couple of week period, while being heavily pregnant, I found out that my father was very unwell with his second cancer. And it was a sort of prognosis that you wouldn't wish on anybody, even your worst enemy. And I decided at that point that I would press pause. So I called all the buyers that I knew. And fortunately, because I tend to get on very, very well with anybody that I do business with, they were all friends of mine. So I'd become very good friends with them. And I called them and I said, look, I can solve all these problems for you, but I need to go home. Mm. And they all agreed. So we literally pressed pause. I was not fined by anybody. Supermarket standard terms and conditions are that you have to supply them mm. for a certain period of time. You have to give them notice because they're potentially letting down their customers. And I said, I'll be back in about six to eight months once I figure out what's going on. And also I need to have this child. And then it was a very tumultuous time for the family. Mm. So we pressed pause, but I still retained my position on the advisory boards in government. I also managed to go to the Mayo Clinic with my father's scans and find that, you know, is not really much to do with entrepreneurship, but it is to do with, you know, never really settle if you're not quite sure. So we got second opinions and touch wood, six years later, he's alive. There were about two surgeons in the world that could save him. Right. And we found one. So I'm very glad that I went home. 
But during that period, I was sitting on the advisory board at Biz. And Vince Cable was very interested in skills because that was part of his remit with Matthew Hancock, who was the bridge yeah, minister yeah, between yeah. Department for Education and Department for Business. And I learned the fact that 1.8 million children were underperforming in UK schools. And I did say to them, I've been building schools in, in India and in Africa. Why can't we get education right here? And so I decided to dig a little bit deeper. So I took my two-year-old at the time and I was either heavily pregnant and at some, you know, after I gave birth, I obviously had a buggy and I was pretending at schools to be a parent interested in the school for my child. But actually what I was doing was asking a lot of questions and finding out what was going on in schools. And I found that there were two big pain points on the front line in schools with teachers. And that was that the one-size-fits-all delivery of education is inadequate. We know it doesn't work. We know that students are left behind. They're left unchallenged. And we know that teachers feel very disheartened by this. But they have no other way of delivering education because they've got a class size. At that time, the average was 27 kids per class. And they have a national curriculum to get through in a certain period of time. They're regulated by Ofsted. They have all these challenges. And the second pain point that actually was spoken about more was that data entry and data management is a huge issue. So teachers spend 60%, 60% time on admin rather than on teaching. And no teacher I've ever met signed up for that. That's right? including marking as well. Marking, micro-assessing, yeah. admin, data management, yeah. producing all the working at grades to put in the management information system so that Ofsted can see that, that you're tracking the progress and achievement of every child. You know, every time an intervention is necessary, dealing with parents gathering all that data for end of term, planning your lessons, all of these things, which struck me, you know, some of which could be automated. Mm. And so I looked at it and I thought, well, we've been using technology in every other part of the world and transforming every sector in the world. What are you using? And all I was seeing in every school was that the blackboard was now a whiteboard. And that was it. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, this is extraordinary. So why don't we look at solving this problem? So I went back to Biz and I spoke to a member, a special advisor to Secretary of State and said, I'd like to look into this. And I must say that every time anyone on the board would do that, they would welcome you to work on specific Mm. projects, which was actually a great testament to how they ran that advisory board because you don't want to be on an advisory board where it's just lip service Mm. and you're there for optics. So I looked into it. I did the Stanford University Artificial Intelligence course. Over this period, I spoke to founders of tech companies. I was learning what was going on in the world. I accompanied a, a mayor to uh, one of the mayor, the mayor at the time to the US to go and have a look at what was going on with technology. And I came up with this idea around the last quarter of 2012 to build a platform, a technology platform that would learn how every brain learned. And if we could learn how we learn, then we could personalize education for every student using similar technology to all of those recommendation engines that we now see you know, for shopping, for marketing, for search. We could then take all the data while a student was learning and just provide it on intuitive real-time dashboards for teachers. Mm. And there's your admin, there's your marking, it's auto-marked. As technology progresses, the more natural language processing we could use would be helpful in terms of long-form answers. But initially, that's not actually even using machine learning, that's just using advanced data science. And then if you put a layer of machine learning on top of that, the machine would learn how every individual learned. You know, the algorithms would be smarter and smarter as they moved along. The data would obviously feed into that. And the point is is that you would end up with a completely personalized platform that learns the pace of learning, focus levels, memory function, knowledge, skill set of every child in real time. And then provides every student with the content they need to learn so that it could plug their gaps in knowledge and skills. Yeah, you won't know, but I was chair of a private school in Cambridge for five years. And the big issue there is you can't be agile. 
You've got yeah. these long cycles, don't you? It takes you, there's only a sixth form, but it will still take two years to find out whether you'd pick the right student in on the way out. I mean, it's there's plenty of data hard. out there, yeah. but actually the timescales involved are long. Yeah, the timescales are long, but they would do that using a lot of summative assessments. So schools would often look at a student's key stage two grade. And then obviously, as we've developed in terms of policy, we now have progress eight metrics. So we'd calculate, well, this student at key stage two is likely to get X grade at key stage four. And then you'd have to, as a school, add progress. If a machine itself could make targeted interventions mm. by learning how you learn and knowing what you need to know, but then giving a teacher the right intuitive data, actionable insights, not just death by data, but this is what you need to look at and allow them to make those interventions, you make them a lot faster and you can improve outcomes. So the premise was that rather than waiting two weeks for the student to do the homework and give it back and you've got to mark it, then you've got to have the time to make the intervention. In all that time, if a student spends 10 minutes on a piece of technology, mm. you know, it could do that automatically. So I thought, why can't we build this? So it was a two-pager that I produced, two-page piece of paper. And I put it at the top, there is no technology that does this because I'd been out there that the first option was always to find the technology mm. for the UK, present it to DfE yeah, yeah. and to Biz, because Biz Bayes now is, is still very interested in skills. It has to be because their remit is the economy, right? And so they're very, very focused on education. It's not just Department for Education and find it and give it to them. Because it didn't exist, I thought, let's build it. I remember years ago meeting somebody from the Silicon Valley that Sherry Couture had brought over that was building something like this in a tech company in Silicon Valley. I go every year to keep abreast of what's going on. There are lots of companies who say that they use artificial intelligence, and they don't. And Century was not using machine learning for two years mm. that it was out there because we were gathering data. We were looking at the National People Database. It's about mining the right databases, but it's about collecting a lot of data. There was one company in the USA that was using it what the technology would have to have in order for it to work, and this is really what would take a year to build, is A, the right data model, which most tech entrepreneurs will appreciate is it's not a small piece of work, right? And it's not a small piece of thought that goes into that. And you have to be agile in terms of your model to make sure it works. But you'd need a content agnostic content management system. Mm. And you wouldn't be able to rely on somebody else's content management system. It would have to be a system that could suck in any content, work with any content, work with any curriculum, any course, any author, to work with you know, any course out there. Mm. And so there is a company out there. I mean, they've pivoted three times now, and they're now focused on higher education. I think they spent something like $160 million right. in terms of the, the money that they've raised. And they were possibly too early. Their chief exec has left last year, so he's left and he's doing other things. And they were potentially too early for their time. Yeah, okay. And this is something, again, that entrepreneurs have to understand. Is sometimes it's not that the idea is not fantastic. It's not that it's amazing. You will meet so many entrepreneurs out there who will say, that was my idea. I even started building it. I couldn't get funding or I couldn't get traction. And it's often because it was too early. MySpace you know? and Facebook right, are exactly. good examples. Yeah, exactly. All the search engines before Google. <laughs> exactly. So if you're too early before your time, it's bad luck. You know, yeah. You've produced something really innovative and it shouldn't distract people from innovation. Innovation's about survival. It's crucial. But unfortunately, sometimes timing's not right. So you went out for funding then? Well, first, there was a discussion of, hang on, I've got a company. It's profit making. It's done really well. Uh, it's a small business. And I masala, was masala 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 yeah, masala, yeah, yeah. I was scaling it. I had yeah. a distributor. All I need to do is find another distributor, potentially going to another manufacturer. It. You need to rebuild the stock on the shelves as well, didn't you? Well, no, it was because it was fresh. It would cut, it would came off the shelves within ten days oh, after yeah, I paused. We had over fifteen thousand complaints from customers saying, "Where is it?" And yeah. I'd given them a date that I was coming back, which I didn't realise wouldn't come true. No, I had all the buyers ready yeah. to take it on again. And once you're in the supermarket, if you're strategic in terms of your marketing, see, even though I was B2B, I was working with supermarkets, yeah, all my marketing was B2C. 
So I'm I'm really far more experienced in B2C marketing to, than I'm B2B. You need to get your shelf space back there, don't you? But they would give it back. Give you it know, back because back. I know them. I still know them today. There are plenty of businesses that come to me for help with food. And I always, yeah, you know, they yeah. know that I'm pretty friendly with these people. So, no, the space would be there. I could go back because this was a successful source for them. Mm. Right? And if, it's, if it is a successful source for them and a yeah, successful right. brand, they know that it's going to work. If your rate of sale is high, mm. they're going to take it on again. I had no problem with that. But at the end of the day, what it came down to was this one dinner where I went to an Italian restaurant near my parents' house with my husband. And I said, I think I'm going to go back to work. Uh, you know, my father's okay. I've now got this you know, new baby, but I'm getting itchy feet. And during this period, I had also annoyed my family a little bit because I was supposed to be relaxing. And I had decided that I would write a book just because I'd been told that I'd never be able to write a book by one of my teachers because I wasn't bright enough. So I decided I'm going to write one anyway. So in this period, I actually wrote a book as well. Which you published. Which I published. Yeah. Well, I published it because I took, it, took the script into Waterstones near me and the Waterstones manager said, this is really good. You should get this published. So I found an artist in Seattle. I really liked her drawings. And I said, would you paint this for me? And she said, okay. And she said, what are you going to do with it? And how much are you going to pay for it? I said, no, any money we make, we're going to give to Great Ormond Street Hospital. And she said, okay. I don't know who they are, but it sounds great. <laughs> I said, go on their website. I've always had a big soft spot for that hospital. I said, look, why don't we just do something where it's, again, charitable? The thing that you already realise about me is I won't get out of bed in the morning to do something that's not going to try and change the world. Yeah. Um, so I wrote the book on space because I really love astrophysics. I'm, re- I'm a bit of a geek at heart. But to write the book, I thought, well, I don't know how to write a book. My English literature teacher told me that I wasn't very bright at school. So I need to learn how children read. And so I read about 60 neuroscience journals on how children learn. And so this was part and parcel of the thesis of what would then form century. And I was fascinated by the plasticity of the brain, by all the anatomy of the brain, you know, looking at the amygdala, the hippocampus and how they all work together. And oh my goodness, you know, it was just so fascinating. I wrote the book. It was published. It was, it's been translated into other languages. It's called Zarin's Perfect World. It's a little preschooler's book. For my, it was written for my children. Yeah. And it's about this wizard called Zarin. The USP of this book, because everything has to have a USP, is that... Every book that my children were reading, they were really creative, which is brilliant, which is what you want. But when they would ask questions about dinosaurs or space, I would either take them to a reference book and they would switch off, or I would try and explain it, which is fine if you're a parent who has time, which I did at the time, or I would take them to a museum, because I'm one of those nutty people that would just turn up to a museum in an hour's notice. But take into account that I live in London, so it's possible for me mm. to do that. I thought, well, how do parents do this? So I decided to create a preschooler book that was a blend of science and story. Mm. So it's based on the facts of the solar system. So he tries to find a hospitable planet. He goes all the way from Neptune to Mercury. And it's in verse because children love verse, and I learned that. Uh, and he learns why they're inhospitable. Uh, and then he ends up at Earth, obviously, which is perfect. And it's got this sort of rhyme in it, which they like to, you know, children like to shout out at me in the street in Hampstead <laughs> because they know that I wrote the book. But I wrote that. So it's based on facts, but it is about this wizard who goes off into space. It's got a bit of creativity yeah. in there. So I did that, went for dinner with my husband and said, I'm going to go back to work. And so I better revive Masala Masala. And that is honestly what I said. And I'm never going to tell you, you know, a lie. I did say that uh, because I obviously wasn't bold enough to think what I should have been thinking. And he said to me, I can't understand why you're going to do that. All you've been talking about for the last few months is education. And he said, look, you know, at this point, so he was on the board of NetJets, but then he was running a tech VC. And he said, you know, technology is really how you want to transform the world. Why don't you look into that? So typical entrepreneur style. I'm sure you've heard this before, Peter. We got a napkin out. 
drew a line down the middle, put masala masala on one column and the top next column was headed company X. He scrubbed out masala masala and he said, no, don't do that because it's your baby and you're too emotional when you talk about it, put company Y. So we had a, a reverse column. We had company Y and company X and we loosely did sort of the financials of each. So with company Y, I knew them. So I'd also created a food service product with that and I did a deal with 3663. So that company was always going to scale because food service is really how you make a lot of money. Yes. And it was an ambient source, which frankly, I wouldn't eat myself. And that's why I really didn't want to put it on the market, but I'd created it and I'd done the deal. So that was Masala Masala and that was going to grow in a certain way. I'd had an offer to purchase Masala Masala two years in. So I knew generally, even in my late 20s, what this might be mm. worth. And so I had all that down. On the other column, I had this tech company, which obviously cost a lot more money to build, was far more risky. Turn over the napkin, same columns. So company Y, it said sell curry sources, feed the homeless. And company X, it said education. Yes. And when we wrote that and I looked at it, I had goosebumps and I thought I can't not because it's a bigger deal and I don't really trust anyone else to do it properly. Uh, and so I did that. Then I went out to raise money. So as you can imagine, I had lots of naysayers. How are you going to build a tech company? You're not a former Google engineer. Again, you know, do you have a sibling who's a Google engineer? As you met me in some angel investing forums, I've been yelled at. I've been shouted at. I've been told I'm not good enough. I've been told quit and go home and stop wasting everyone's time. That was somebody I'll never forget the person who said that. And I cannot wait until I write my book and to say, well, I didn't quit. I didn't go home. And already today, four years on, I have a company with thousands and thousands of children on it who thank us every day, specifically children with autism, special needs, children with a pupil premium background who are not given the best start in life who are outperforming other children on our technology. Yeah, we'll talk about where you've got to, but I just want to find out about funding. So did you find Richard Little or did he find yeah. you? Or? So when I went out to go and get funding, I didn't know what to do because I'd never had to raise money before. I started Masala Masala with £25,000 of my own money and it was turning a profit. So with this, I went to a couple of friends of mine, founders, I called them up and I said, what do I do and where do I go? And I called Julie Meyer because she was also on Vince Cable's advisory board. Mm. And I knew that Julie did events and you know, knew a lot of people. And Julie just wrote back to her. She sent her an email. So Julie emailed me back and said straight away, I've got an event tomorrow at the Four Seasons in Hampshire called Entrepreneur Country. Come along. So at six o'clock in the morning the next day, I got up and said, I'm going to go and fundraise. And my husband thought I was nuts. He <laughs> said, why are you going to Hampshire? And I said, well, I'm going to go and start fundraising. I don't know how to do it, but did I'll try. Did you have a pitch deck? Did you I didn't have pitch? anything. I didn't have anything. I had a piece of paper. <laughs> so I went there. And I met a bunch of people. And actually, there was a man that I met there who I approached who spoke on stage. I was so impressed with his speech. It was through him that I met another person and then another person. And three of those people, actually, that I met through the him invested, including him himself. Yes. He invested. And then I met a group of other people. And it, it was from that first introduction, I've met every single angel investor. Right. Everybody. So actually, had I not gone to that event, I have no idea whether Century would be funded or I'm not. I'm sure you would have. Um, so, uh, well, the, the really um, arrogant, I suppose, uh, you know, comment that I made once was somebody said, so fundraising is really hard. And I said, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I just turned up to one event. I wanted to raise £115,000 because that was the magic SEIS number. But I raised 540 within a few weeks. Yeah. Lots and you were a single founder? Single founder, no tech no experience. Team, no, no team, no, nothing, no. piece of paper. I said, I'm going to change education with this platform. And it was an idea. I built a deck in that time. I built an animation video that said what Century would do. And it's pretty similar now to what it does do. But I showed that to people as a vision. 
got people to invest. I got Telefonica's Wire to invest. Oh, yeah. Gary Stewart still says, this is the only company I've invested in that was a piece of paper and a founder of a tech company that yes. doesn't build tech. So he said, you better do good. And I said, I'll do good. But I think it's because of track records. So Masala yeah. Masada was, you know, it definitely served its purpose in terms of its charitable outcomes. And obviously it did very, very well as a business. As a sole founder, I couldn't have asked for more mm. from that business, but it obviously set me up in good stead for Century. And that matters, you know, and I think people underestimate how much that matters. Prior experience can matter. It doesn't matter for everybody. You've got lots of founders who are successful and it's their first venture and they've built, you know, Airbnb or Facebook, which is great. But actually, you know, people you underestimate. a lot from that, yeah. Yeah, and it's all transferable. You know, all the things come up in the same way. And so and that's actually how I met Richard Little. So I met Richard Little about... 10 investor meetings later. So not in the first round? Either. No, I met him in the first round. Yeah. So I took on quite a few angels in my first round. I met 15 angels and of the 15, nine invested. Mm. I said no to two of them because it's something that I learned from Masala Masala. I'm still learning now and I, I don't think I'll ever stop learning there. But every single day that I've run a business, I have always learned that one of the mistakes I constantly make is when we believe in something, believe in it with real conviction. We've all got a gut instinct. And whenever I don't do that, I find I make a mistake. I've done that in terms of hiring previously, where I've just I've thought black and white. I've said, oh, it looks really good. And somebody else has said, pray, you've got to hire this person. And my gut instinct has just said no. Mm. And a lot of that is to do with culture. And with angel investing, it's the same. Mm. So just as much as investors pick opportunities, you are an opportunity as an entrepreneur. If you've got something they're willing to invest in, you've got an opportunity. And no one wants to put their money in a bank and then hmm. 0.75 to 1%. Or well, something. Well, some do. Well, some do, but not, you know, that doesn't appeal to most angel investors. But you've got an opportunity, but also pick the angels that match your profile. Hmm. Uh, you've got to pick a diverse set of angels. But at that time, I, I remember being strong enough to say, I don't want these couple of angels. And well, that's probably chemistry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, in tech also, you know, uh, one of them is very much, unfortunately, the story that has broken in the media over the last year, which is not behaving well yeah. with females. And I'm a female founder, yeah. and that has come up time and time again at Century. It's come up more in Century than I'd ever imagined, and certainly more than in my FMCG business. With investors or with others? Both. Okay. I've had uh, founders, investors behave incredibly, not my investors. Yeah, yeah. I have to say that I've managed to pick quite well. Yeah. But yes, with um, investors, I've had six meetings with one investor. We've gone into due deal, and uh, in the last meeting, we've had those problems. And that's something that they've had those problems, yeah. yeah. And so I've walked away. You know, what I find is it's it's important to say these things because people think it doesn't actually exist. Mm. It's never going to happen to me, it happens to everybody else, Mm. and actually, it does. And so I've been quite careful. But with our initial round, we got a great group of investors, and I'm very, very fortunate because all of our investors have been fantastic investors. They've either said, No, I want to watch this quietly, a few have done that, but many investors have been very, very involved. And they are the best advisory board that anyone could ask for. So you've three of you on the board, is it? Yes. Yeah, so, so we've Richard, got you and the CFO. Richard, me, and my CFA, who's also my husband. Yes. So Rahul's been on the board since day one. Right. And he's a very experienced executive. But as you expressed earlier, he's not a co-founder. He had another role at the time. Yeah, he didn't yeah. found Century. Yeah. I found a Century. But interestingly, things have moved on now because it has turned out as we expected in order we've worked very hard for an opportunity well worth pursuing. Yes. And it's really doing some very, very good in the world. We've got data that we just released yesterday that shows we can actually prove outcomes improve as a result of the technology. So in January, he's actually started working here full time, which is really interesting. And you've had another funding round, have you? Or? We've had three funding rounds to date. We've got one open right now. Right. So we opened our funding round this year, last week, yes. just before the end of the tax year, which is just a little tip to entrepreneurs when doing angel rounds is that if you can open your round 
before the end of the tax year. It needs to be a month or so, doesn't it? Because people need a little bit of time to think. You need to open it and need to have time to think because we really opened it for current angels. Yeah, uh, we, oh, okay. We've only that's taken different. funnel on investment. We gave them about a week's notice. But okay, it's because they asked us to. Yeah. They said, we're going to invest this year. So, you know, can you open it a bit earlier? And it's, it's no problem whatsoever to do that. So have you just got angels or is there any funds in there? Yet? We've got angels and family offices okay. and WIRA. Yeah. So no fund, no traditional institution of yes. money, which we will be looking for this and year. how much have you raised so far? So far, we've raised approximately £4.2 million. Pounds, Excellent, OK. And we'll be raising a lot more this year. So I'll be looking at doing a Series A. From a VC almost, certainly. We've had lots of interest from VCs. We've also had lots of interest from family offices. Right. So we are currently building our plan for taking external funding so they can be part of the investor family, which is a great family at Century. All our investors are wonderful. And so once we've produced that deck and we've figured out what the price is, then we'll know who to go to. But I'm not there yet today. In about a month's time, you know, I think yes. we'll have more of a view of how that's going to go. So Priya, what sort of tips have you got for entrepreneurs? I think for new entrepreneurs specifically, just be open to the fact that you don't know what you don't know. Because every time I meet entrepreneurs and they are, you know, they're in a real panic because the business is going in a different direction or they've been faced with problems that they didn't foresee. I always say, but you knew that was going to happen, right? And it can't be said and emphasized enough that that will happen. The other tip I'd say to entrepreneurs, which is just the honest truth, is that you will experience two feelings while being an entrepreneur. You fluctuate between euphoria and terror at any given moment. And hopefully you'll have far more experiences of euphoria, but you will have moments of terror. And this is because this is your baby. You know, you'll have built this from the ground up. You'll have a team. I've got 40 people that I'm responsible for at Century. I've got lots more users and customers. And when things go wrong, you take them personally. And, you know, I'm also responsible for all my investors. And I take that incredibly seriously. I wouldn't take a penny off anyone unless I really, really felt that I could succeed. And you go through all sorts of emotions because you've done that, because that's the life that you're living. So for entrepreneurs that think, well, I don't want to work for somebody else, there's a difference between being unemployable because you have a real entrepreneurial mindset, which is great, and a real difference between just not wanting to work hard enough elsewhere, because this is a lot harder. But what I would say is that it is far more rewarding. So if you can do it, then absolutely gather momentum on whatever idea you have. Go and seek feedback from other people. You will be working in an agile way. That's the way that everybody works. You know, businesses that don't operate in that way fail. Take on advice. Ignore the naysayers. You're going to get so many of them. And it can be really, really disheartening. But just ignore them. You've got a gut instinct. Take on their advice and just see, you know, is there anything useful in this advice that I can take on to make my product better or my offering better or to make my deck better or whatever it is that they're telling you. But then continue ahead. And just remember that you're going to go down a really adventurous path. It's going to be tumultuous. It's going to be rocky. But if you can take on that type of pressure and if you can enjoy it, and the end game is basically a dream of yours, is something that actually, you know, gives you goosebumps, you can't live without, then you're on the right path. If that doesn't feel comfortable to you, then you're better off maybe finding an entrepreneurial company you can work within, you know, where you're not the founder. And I think that's the best advice that I can give because the entrepreneurs that I see being really successful, we all get off on the same things, if that's the right way of putting it. You know, we're kind of adrenaline junkies and we do it every day because it's within our role. It doesn't really feel like a job because we love what we do. We have purpose in what we're doing. And, for, you know, for those that actually struggle, you know, they may have got into things for the wrong reason or not really seen reality. And then, you know, but, but by all means, you know, I don't want to say that there are entrepreneurs out there that don't continue with their particular ventures for only those reasons. There are ones that, unfortunately, as I said, are too early. 
you know, there is such a thing as luck. I think well, you can make your luck, but there is bad half luck. half the companies will fail. So. Yeah, absolutely. So over 60%, you know, in your yeah. first year. But give it a go if you think you're ready for it, because our country is a great country. You know, Britain's great. We are incredibly innovative. British people are very polite. If you ask them a question and ask for advice, most of them will give it to you. Mm. Whereas, you know, you can go to other places and people aren't that forthcoming. So we're very, very polite. We don't say no. And you can abuse that and exploit it because they want to help. So I think, you know, there are lots of tools at your fingertips that are available online. You know, there's just a plethora of resources mm. out there. And give it a shot or don't. That's the best advice that I could give. But don't live your life with any regrets. Excellent. Very well. There's so much more we could talk about. We didn't yeah. talk about the product itself. No, we'll have something in the show notes the about the... About yes, exactly. Yes, yes, we do that simply. No, it's yeah. listening to your voice and your, your passion and, and your thank experience you. that we want to do. So thank you very much, Priya. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Signed pre-orders for our Invested Investor book are now available on our website. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting and insightful content from The Invested Investor. Investor.